On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group finishes, hopefully, their discussion on Queensryche's empire. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter, Ken Gregory, and Tom Corcoran as we hopefully finish up our discussion on Queensryche's empire. Dun, dun, dun. Gentlemen. So how, how about Operation Mindcrime? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been almost two weeks since I've listened to Operation Mindcrime, and I feel a little, little sense of loss. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Obviously, as I usually am at this time of the week, I'm down in my, uh, my place in Bryan College Station, so I have to drive back. I don't even have a copy of Operation Mindcrime in my car. Wow. I can't even listen to it when I drive We've back really tomorrow. turned the corner. Really it's, turned the corner. It's very sad. That's saying something because you have like 12 different versions. <laughs> you can never have too many versions of Operation Mindcrime as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it is the best concept album of which I am aware. Period. But. We are not here to talk Operation Mindcrime, much as I would love to continue talking Operation Mindcrime. We are here to return to and finish out Empire. Say whatever we want to about this record. You know, they turned whatever corner they turned. They obviously became huge and, and super successful. We did talk about this in the, the live crime episode because this was the tour where they performed Mindcrime in its mm-hmm. entirety. And so, you know, whatever you want to say about Empire and Silent Lucidity, which we will get to, the fact that they did sort of break through and become, you know, such darlings and were able to to do this enabled them to be able to perform that. And as we discussed in that episode on the live performances, the tour to support this record these guys were at their their peak, their apex in terms of it's it's an interesting combination, right? Because it's not to say that today they aren't technically adept, but there was sort of this wonderful conjunction of ability, enthusiasm, creativity, and engagement that like when i watch either the the live crime video itself or you know on the building empires thing there's a whole bunch of of live videos yeah. from that tour it's just engaging like i just want to watch them again and again and again you know as ridiculous as they are with you know the hats and the chaps and the posing and the left-handed necks on the guitar. Everything about it is just screams goofy late 80s, early 90s metal shit. But it's so fucking good. I love it. (laughs) Last episode, we got through Jet City Woman, which really isn't very far into the record, um, which takes us to Della Brown. Is Della Brown the most underrated song on this record. You know, I'm going to assume that the four of us are maybe in the same place wherein 
like I listen to Della Brown and it just, you know, musically, it kind of gives me goosebumps. Like, I think it's great, but yeah. I spent a lot of time sort of just disregarding Della Brown. Me too. I'd say that I'm pretty sure, you know, because of the limitations of your standard, you know, blank tape, I, I've been making North American editions of just a, a, every favorite album ever since the, uh, <laughs> the, the nineties. So in my personal North American edition of empire Della Brown was omitted and um, really yeah and I will say that I don't think it's uh underrated I think it 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 belongs right where it is it's awesome I think it's obviously the base I mean it's Eddie Jackson's moment of glory um I think him didn't him didn't Eddie Jackson and Scott Rockenfeld write this write this tune Apparently um, Tate and Rockenfeld. Okay. Eddie Jackson didn't even, <clears throat> I thought he wrote it. Yeah. It's, it's credited as DeGarmo, Rockenfeld and Tate. I feel like uh, the music is uh, an A plus, but the uh, vocal melody and the lyrics are a B minus. Yeah. I, I definitely have an issue with the lyrics. I don't think they convey the level of respect and admiration that Jeff thinks that they do. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. I wasn't even planning to go there, but I mean, if, if it's an honorable tribute to someone with questionable housing situation, it's still sensationalized. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, not to, not to rag on it, but in the, the big booklet, Let's let's let Jeff Tate speak for himself and you guys decide. Quote, Della Brown, for example, was the name of a homeless woman who lived in a building next to me. She was nice. She was a nice, bright personality for someone who was homeless, whom I'll never forget. Like, that's just that <laughs> the way that's expressed is yeah. it, it's just not great. Yeah, it's not great. It's also questionable. You make a lot of money writing a song about someone who's homeless. Yeah. There, there seems to be uh, something not quite right about that. Of course, he did have to give it all to his ex-wife. So maybe it all would work, you know, evened out. Maybe. But I agree with you, Paul. Musically, I absolutely love this now. Because, I mean, Eddie and Scott just, you know, they're given room to just kind of be awesome. Yeah without a whole bunch of stuff on top of them. And it's very refreshing in a lot of ways. I think it, it points to some of the space that's going to be afforded on promised land, you yeah. know, and, and last week we had the, the quote from Tate talking about them, you know, they would overwrite songs. And so they were trying to maybe not pile as many things on and that's going to, you know, become much more prominent in, in the next record, but here it shows up. And I think it's absolutely delightful. Yeah. I wish they would have taken out Dirty Little Secret from the remaster and just put an instrumental version of Della Brown on mm. in, instead. So musically, we like this. How do we feel about the guitar solo here? Like, is it appropriate? Is it good? I feel like the first guitar solo is whoever's responsible for that. I'm assuming DeGarmo. It's some, It's a little Stephen Rothery-ish at mm. points. Yeah. I could see I like that. It. Yeah. 
I mean, as close to Stephen Rothery as, you know, either one of those two will, will ever get. I was going to say that it's nice to have a little bit of a break with all the heavy songs, but I don't know if the album needs a break because there already is some nice dynamics. And if I had to pick my two least favorite songs, this would probably be one of them. But the thing is, I mean, even mediocre Queensryche is, is still above the board. So, I mean, I, I'm still enjoying it. This song does not compare to the best songs on this album, but I do enjoy it. And I'm glad it's on here. I'm glad they wrote it. And I, I think it's worthy of the album, but it's not one of my high points. See, I, and that's what I was getting at because I, I would have agreed with you for most of my life, but now I'm just like, it's one of the things I actually prefer listening to. And I did, I have a note here at the start of the break before the second verse, we get another one of those instances where Scott drops in one of those just delightful fills out of nowhere. And you're just like, yeah, skip back like, you know, 10 seconds and listen to it again. Cause it just, it, it's such a little thing to focus on, but it's so delightful when he does it. I wonder if I like this song so much better now because I skipped it so many times. <laughs> so many years ago. You just haven't listened to it enough. Yeah. It's beautiful. It, it does breathe. I like that because I find much of this era of Queens like dense. Um, the one part that's not convincing to me is just the snare ambience. It's still got the huge gated reverb. And if it was really going to be kind of the more funky, groovy, chill song, I, I would treat that snare differently. It would still have the pop, but it wouldn't be so metal. I dig it. It feels good. Okay, cool. Takes us on to another rainy night without you. Now, this is, you know, we we touched on this a little bit last week. In the Mind Crime episode, I had hypothesized, was this, in fact, a leftover track? Um, but when I finally looked at the lyrics in the readable big book version, oh, no, my friend, not at all. <laughs> um, as Paul pointed out, it seems very unlikely that um, heroin-riddled Nicky is really worrying too much about his takeout food. However, the the line that I always thought, let's just read this. Um, but now my takeout food is growing cold and the candles burned a hole in the floor. Now, I always heard that as, and the candles from the hole in the floor, which is what tied it into oh. mind crime. Oh. Mm. So I, never when, heard, I never heard it that way before. Yeah, see, that's what I always heard it as. So when I read it, I'm like, oh, well, that kind of ruins that. So um, I can debunk myself. I do love a lot about um, this, this track. I like the ambiance of it. I love the, the words in the second verse specifically. Listen, there's a foghorn blowing from the coast tonight. Remember making love in the rain? Strange how laughter looks like crying with no sound. Raindrops taste like tears without the pain. Oh, I just, I think yeah. those are great lyrics. I think the, the, the vocal melody when he delivers those is absolutely delightful. And, you know, it, it's a stupid little aspect. But when you get, I believe it's at the end of that verse, before they go back into the chorus, or where is it? Where he's talking about waiting 
and check the voicemail for a message you've called. And they have that little sound bite of, you know, you have no new messages. It's just, it's a very, very small aspect of this sound design thing, but it's done so expertly and it fits in there. And, you know, it just, it's able to sort of capture that, that sort of, empty longing feeling that Jeff is conveying in this song. And I just respond to it. Honestly, I think this is the song that Jet City Woman was trying to be. I mean, I, I think that, yeah. I, I think this song, there's a lot of similarities, Jet City Woman, but I, I think this song, I think it's because it's a little bit more personal. I'm emotionally there. I just fall in love with the, the melody over the whole thing, but certainly the melody in the chorus. And I just, this is, this is one of the great songs for me. So I, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of another rainy night without you. You can't ever have a song where at any point in the time, the music breaks and you, and the singer goes without you and not think of Don Dawkin. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. And so like that's it always had that ring to it for me, that connection. But it's kind of funny listening to all of this and the way we have, you know, listening to this song and thinking, God, is this the same band that did Spreading the Disease? This song and Hand in Heart to me are like two parallels. They're like the two most Bon Jovi songs of the lot. Really? I'm going to take exception. I think this song really? is way better than anything Bon Jovi could have cranked out. It's probably better than Bon Jovi, but it's the most Bon Jovi-ish songs. Like these, you know, we talked about the, the backing vocals. You know, the backing vocals have now taken on a gang quality, right? You can't tell That's Jeff and Chris or anyone else. And you're actually, if you're singing this in the car, you're actually tempted to not even sing part of the chorus because it sounds like it's a choir of backing vocalists with you. I mean, I'm a fan of the song. I, I like it for all the same things that, that you guys said. But uh, over time, this one, I'm like, wow. Yeah, I, I'll take Della Brown. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, hmm, really? Wow. Interesting. Okay. I think Another Rainy Night is more traditional. It's got the uh, guitars and thirds harmony in the beginning. It does sound like a side B of mind crime kind of a thing. And Joe, I think you're being too literal. Maybe it could have been on side a of mind crime but i appreciate your your analysis of the lyrics i guess it needs to be here just to represent this part of queen's i i i feel like it's you know very much them and it's very much authentic you know but personally i'm i'm more inclined to to skip it i guess when i'm going through here the lyrics are pretty they're interesting but they're predictable like the vibe is predictable not my favorite okay which takes us into the title track Empire. Nice. Didn't someone different mix this or produce this one? I'm sorry, I don't have my book with me. I thought I remember on that video building empires. They it's not Peter Collin. I thought someone else took the controls on this one for some reason. How dare they? Paul Northfield, maybe, or something like that. Or maybe I'm thinking of something. There's totally nothing different. in the wikis that that suggests that's the case. Let me see if I can find it in the big booklet. I don't have much to say about Empire other than bitchy old man stuff. So this was the first single. I think this came out. This was like a radio station. Hey, the new Queensryche album's coming out next month. So, you know, you can you can play this now. And um, 
you know, so for the week that I was at school before I got the CD from Tom early, I think I burned this on cassette from the radio station and got the chance to play it on my show. And I think everything that you knew about Queensryche coming into Empire, this was the greatest first single they could have possibly released. It gave you everything that the band was, but at this super high testosterone mix with ridiculous reverbs and the guitars were all of a sudden just rich and voiceovers, you know, about the government spending on law enforcement and all the stuff. It was just fucking killer. And you were, you just like couldn't fucking wait for the album to come out. And just, you had a sense that, you know, they were coming back somehow bigger and better than they ended with, with Operation Mindcrime. I agree. I mean, this is sort of a Queensryche crowd pleaser. I think this is really a highlight of, of the album. It gives you all the elements of Queensryche that you love. The arrangement and the way they do things are very unorthodox, especially with Jeff sings in his lower register and sort of like counterpart with the higher register at times in the pre-chorus. And he does things that you can definitely tell there was some magic in the studio. This wasn't something that they just sort of like whipped up around a guitar riff. I mean, Operation Mindcrime will always be the creme de la creme, but this is sort of like, aside from that, I mean, th this to me is, is Queensryche. And I, I wish there was a little bit more of this. I mean, there's definitely a lot of highlights on this album. And I'm not complaining because I, I do like this album a lot. But, I mean, th this is the Queensryche that I would certainly love to hear. And I think I said this about Rage for Order. I wanted to hear another Rage for Order after Rage for Order. I, I want to hear more of Empire after Empire. And in, in this case, the song Empire. There's just, there's more of this big production, big sound that isn't all reverb. You know, I know the 80s are famous for the big washes of reverb and the just ridiculous you know, cave, cavern sounding things that sort of wash away everything. Um, this gives you the, the largeness of that, but it delivers. It has the bones. It's it's profound, you know, it, it's talking about important things, not just getting laid on Saturday night. And it sort of has that, that sort of white snake production, but it's more well thought out and it's more profound and it's more thoughtful. This song is, to me, is, is, is a perfect Queen Drake song. I would agree with you. If it wasn't for the misleading statistics part. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Uh, would you like to go first on that, Joe, since you've put more time into it than I have? Well, I haven't, I, I can't say I've put as much time into it as I imagined that I wanted to, um, and I wasn't nearly as successful. Um, but, you know, I'm obviously, I'm a scientist. My job is to, Obviously, I'm not at the bench anymore, so I don't generate data, but my job is essentially to report data. And it's part of the job that you can tell different stories depending on how you package and present the data. This has always bothered me for as long as I've been listening to this record in the sense that broad strokes, what we're getting out of out of Jeff Tate in this section is a bunch of seeming statistics. And I was frustrated that I could not verify these statistics 
Um, apparently, it's not quite as easy to find uh, federal spending amounts in 1986, 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what Jeff seems to be communicating is that since the federal government spends so much money on all these other things and not on law enforcement, that everything's a piece of shit and all these criminals are running around doing criminal things. But in the strictest sense, my interpretation, two things that he brings up are space exploration and national defense. Now, law enforcement in the strictest sense is not and should not be a fundamentally federal concern. National defense, however, is. No one else is spending money on the armed forces to protect the country. Therefore, yes, it's going to be a much larger um, expenditure than law enforcement because you have state and local municipalities who basically handle that. Um, Again, up until the advent of private space companies, you know, a decade ago, there was no one else spending money on space exploration. So I find the whole thing to be a bit disingenuous and it's always kind of pissed me off. I found it the juxtaposition of the line politicians say no to drugs while we pay for wars in South America. It's the counterpoint to that. Although I don't think it's quite executed the same, right? Because I think that the whole war on drugs thingy is more about law enforcement. Self-preservation. Yeah, self-preservation while allowing for allowing basically allowing the 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 drug business to take place and and, and keeping it um, confined to you know specific pockets of demographics right and maybe I'm going a little bit too deep and maybe I'm I, I, I just and maybe I'm not really expressing myself very well but I just feel like it's a counterpart to those that same concept I don't know that it, it rings true for me though I don't think spending more on law enforcement would fix the problem. And maybe that's what he's saying. I will I will give him this while I disagree with the premise and I think it's disingenuous. I think that section is done exceptionally well. Yes. And I enjoy listening to it if even if I don't enjoy what's being said. Yeah, I really I really appreciate this because after years of listening to it and it being the best-selling Queensryche album ever. I'm sure Queensryche can handle a little bit of scrutiny and Jeff can handle a little bit of scrutiny and I'm sure it's all in good fun. It's not the best argument. Occam's razor speaks volumes. You know, given conspiracy theories or competing theories or all these general ideas, we as a society, society put money towards what we value to the extent that we can. And if you still have too many illicit drugs or crime or violence or guns out there, it's because somebody wants that. Someone's profiting off of it or someone allows that. I mean, I don't know that any of this argument is really compelling other than Jeff just stating, you know, I'm pro law enforcement and I hope these guys are safe and I hope they're well-funded. But the way he goes about it, is is not convincing to me. Yeah, that's why I think there's more to it than that because I don't think he's. I don't think that's what he's saying. 
You don't think he's? I don't think he's being sympathetic to the the plight of law enforcement whatsoever. Really? See, I definitely think that he is. Oh, he is in the spoken I mean, word part. Certainly, I think the the singing part is less obvious. But yeah, they actually have a a, a fairly lengthy quote from that spoken word part in the uh, in the booklet, but. Be that as it may. I mean, I you guess know, I'm going to have to get around to reading that booklet sometime I, soon. I guess so. you're going to have to. I do think it was Paul Norfield, by the way, who I think he just was the engineer on this one. I just was okay. sc- scrolling through. Sorry. Oh, Paul Norfield. Okay. Pretty sure. Wasn't he the guy that fucked up Vapor Trails? Oh, yeah. So Paul Northfield is the engineer on tracks 6, 12, and 14. That would be Empire, Last Time in Paris, and Dirty Little Secret. So we can thank him for that piece of shit. Oh, sorry. Did I say that out loud? (laughs) See the guy that did Vapor Trails the first time around? Um, I mean, he's actually actually done a lot of stuff and a lot of really good stuff. So I guess I should not really try to make a joke about him. I mean, he's... he's, All right. So Paul Northfield was the engineer on, among other things... Permanent Waves, Exit yeah. Stage Left, Moving Pictures, Signals, Asia's Alpha, Grace Under Pressure. I'm wow. sorry, he was synthesizer programming on Grace Under Pressure. Um, he was also the engineer on Operation Mind Crime. I was going to say he produced Sarsipius Arc by Infectious Groove. Sarsipius! Yep. Oh, my um, God. So and great. yes, he was the producer and engineer on Vapor Trails. So that piece of shit lies at his feet. Yeah. You know, it, it's amazing how, you know, I almost feel like you, you you said it. You nailed it, Ken. This guy has a resume. I should just like crumble at his greatness. And all I can think of every time I see his name is that that guy ruined Vapor Trails. <laughs> but Vapor Trails probably wasn't a good album anyway because the, they, remi- they remixed, mastered it. And it's still not great. And it still sucks. We had also talked about um, celebrating our fifth calendar year with three redos. We were going to, what, revisit .com, um, Abacab, and one of the last couple Rush albums. We could revisit the Supper's Ready episode as well, just to make sure we get it right this time. Oh, by the way, I was thinking about the Supper's Ready episode. I think we need to do an Awaken episode. But oh, we do. We do. Get us back in. Let's while, get back. Let's get while, back to Empire. Before we get back, Joe, don't let me forget just saying this. Looks like the Keswick is still requiring proof of vaccination. So make sure that you bring your card with you or your picture of it. Well, I need Scottish that right. and, a, and a rectal exam to get into Canada, so no concerns there. All right, mm-hmm. sorry, Scottish right. You're you're right, Ken. Sorry. God damn it! There is so much quick click bait in the world of metal that I don't <laughs> get from the world of like like I need the ultimate gin in my cabinet, the ultimate gin with Ozzy's face on it. I don't know. He about, won't even huh? talk to uh, uh, Jakey Lee. He says that's his favorite less favorite his worst period of of but but oh you're gonna make a little bit of money off alcohol okay the ultimate gin yeah i'll put my face on there the ultimate gin tom with your uh with your tasting episode we need to get some picard wine should we get the ultimate gin as well and just get stone cold (laughs) drunk and 
<laughs> is it a George Thorogood song? Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. so I, yeah, I think that pretty much covers Empire, unless anyone has anything else that they really want to, you know, lay on it. Which takes us into Resistance. This song has an absolutely killer intro. It is just balls out once it gets going. And in some regards, it's sort of classic Tate with regards to certain things. Now, it does have some of the Bon Jovi aspects in terms of the gang vocals and stuff. But I think when Jeff is plowing through these these verses, um, to me, it feels a little bit more classic. And I agree with everything you said, Joe, except for all the stuff after it has a great intro. (laughs) This song is just dumb. I I have always thought it was dumb. I just never understood it. And it it completely blew my mind when, when we saw them live and they opened with this song. I was like, what? I was like, talk about a buzzkill. It's like, oh, yeah, I just don't. This song just doesn't do it for me. This song would have been okay on The Warning, but it sort of bothers me on this album with like a bigger production. It's sort of mixing metaphors with having like the big Bon Jovi sound with the the remnants of The Warning. It's it's really a, a song that I think kind of could be on The Warning, but it just has the wrong production but you know i I do sometimes enjoy this song if i I don't think too much about it i'm in the car and it comes on and wait halfway through the song i'm like oh wait i i'm supposed to hate this song and i was kind of enjoying it (laughs) listen even mediocre queens right songs again are good there's a big deficit between this song and the high points of of Queensryche. And that's what bothers me about post-Promised Land albums. It's not that it's horrible stuff. It's just that Queensryche has brought us to great highs. And those highs cannot go away. And then when you have a song like this one, Resistance, which by all means, it's a good, it's a decent hard rock song. There's nothing overly offensive about it, but it's just not what Queensryche can do. I, I, it's interesting. I'm looking at the the track listing here. So this these two songs, Empire and Resistance, are the only non Degarmo tracks on the mm-hmm. record. They're both Tate Wilton, and I do think they feel a little bit different. Which ones are they? Empire and Resistance. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, clearly, I, I think Empire has a totally different sound, and that would make sense that it's Wilton. Resistance is kind of a more major key, slightly corny version of Wilton that I just didn't expect. It's kind of out of left field. The song's got a weird feeling of major minor. I just can't analyze it. It's like when I listen to Resistance, it's like all of a sudden I understand why people, like why Rush fans don't like Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, which I still love those two albums, but it's like I understand now. Okay. I searched for Tab, or, or chords for resistance. Mm-hmm. This happens with a lot of metal, a lot of Queensryche, where someone will just like write out the guitar solo perfectly note for note, but they won't tell me the basic chords. Yeah, I honestly can't find the fucking chords. And it's driving me nuts. Oh my God, the same lead transcription shows up on like five different sites and no one bothered to do the chords. All right, fuck it. I'm going to have to learn this on my own. <laughs> awesome. Bastards. 
I mean, it's not it's not going to change the world. It's I, I hear everything you're saying. I just, for whatever reason, and it's funny given the way that I generally am, I find myself able to sort of just let loose and enjoy this for what it is. It's not deep, but it's not terrible either. So we can move then on to the next song, which, while decidedly different, is it dumb? This is the big one, Silent Lucidity. The best part about covering Silent Lucidity now is the fact that I get to bring up the charismatic voice again. (laughs) (laughs) Because this, while it wasn't the first of the four Queensryche charismatic voice episodes that I watched, it was the first one that she did. And, you know, knowing how it works, I can imagine there were tons of people clamoring for her to do Queensryche. And I'm not exactly sure how she wound up on Silent Lucidity other than it was like, you know, their biggest song ever. But you could clearly, like, it's obvious that she didn't get the experience that she maybe was expecting on this song. Obviously, she had lots of great things to say about Jeff and his voice because Jeff's just fucking wonderful even when he's doing, I say even when he's doing this, when he's doing this, which is different from what we know her reaction when she did Take Hold of the Flame, which was the second one she did, was much more what you would have expected. And it was clearly not what she was expecting having listened to this. I just can't plug that enough. And I, you know, I've only watched five episodes of what she's done. I've watched the four Queensryche and I've watched um, her do Comfortably Numb. The, the rest of the songs generally just don't interest me enough to maybe sit through that but i do enjoy what she does and i it was fun sort of watching her react to this after empire and resistance this is very calm right it's peaceful it's like okay take take a chill interesting part of the story with regards to this is this was recorded completely without the orchestration and apparently very few people liked it <laughs> Because wow. it, it's apparently it sounded, and you can imagine it sounded very sparse without the orchestration. So they recorded, you know, the guitars and everything and the and the vocals, and then they sent it off to to Cayman for him to do his magic. You know, apparently Peter Collins didn't even want it on the record until he heard it in its complete form, which is, you know, I just find that to be interesting. Wow. Thanks for looking that up. Yeah, that, no that's idea. that's amazing, considering this was their biggest song ever. Yeah, right. I sort of let Krista Garmo retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 it really did. So it's it's sort of bittersweet, actually. Yeah, agreed. I don't know. It's just so beautiful. I don't want to judge it. I just want to listen to it and have it there. And my, Now I want to write I, a time travel movie about a bunch of, you know, geeks like us, and we go back in time and we stop. Crystal Garmo from writing Silent Lucidity. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so so he can stay in the band and we can have, you know, a couple decades worth of the uh, Garmo uh, Queens Rec records. <laughs> Beavis and Butthead's Great Adventure. Is that what we got going on here? Sure. Go ahead, Ken. I totally interrupted you. My only complaint is that it's just not representative. It doesn't represent much of what they did before. And they never tried to reproduce it thereafter. You know, the only thing that comes close is what, London from Rage for Order? There are other ballad-like moments, but nothing that comes close to this. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because they do have this habit of having sort of the quiet last song on the record. 
they did it. They do it here. They'll do it on Promised Land, and they'll they did it on Rage for Order. But this is, to your point, a, it's not even in that sort of territory. It's totally off in a different neighborhood altogether. And yeah, so it's it's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I think with, with everything you know, we'll, we talk about Jeff Tate, you know, vocal wise, like there are so many different songs to just talk about how amazing it is. I, I, I think that over the years, like the sweetest pleasure that I've had with this song is just listening to him sing in a, in a mortal register. <laughs> um, it is. And, and it's, it's beautiful. It yeah. is so beautiful. And the control is amazing. And it's, it's so delicate where it needs to be delicate. And he, digs in ever so slightly in the places where he needs to. And the concept around the song about comforting a child who woke up from a nightmare and and sort of having this sort of a loving and fatherly mentoring and, you know, explaining like you can understand, you can, you can almost for me as as time has gone on as I've raised my own kids, like the feeling I get is the advice and the and the comfort that he's giving to the child is a lifelong comfort. It's not just settling them down after a nightmare so that everyone can go back to sleep. It's this guidance that he's giving his child that will sustain them through the years. And it's, to me, it's just such a precious and beautiful sentiment, you know, even though it's wrapped up into this whole idea of dream control and and everything, which is a fascinating unto itself. So it's just a very peaceful and comforting feeling overall when, uh, when I listen to this song. Well said, Paul. I'll plug myself here and say that I actually have achieved achieved dream control fairly regularly. Um, Oftentimes when I dream, I will be able to realize that it's a dream and take certain control over the situation, which is kind of fun. Nice. Mm. Oh, Do you use those powers for good or evil, Joe? (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to talk about it, Paul. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I think and, and, and next you're taking flight lessons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and I think a lot of what you describe is what Elizabeth talks about in the charismatic voice as well. And I think you know, we've had this conversation before. Certainly when Genesis went off and started to do, you know, maybe more pop-oriented songs, it's an example of Jeff Tate singing a song that most other people could sing, unlike the rest of what he normally does, but he does it in such an exemplary way because he's Jeff Tate that it's still elevated, even though it's, you know, the technical score isn't quite as high, but the execution of it is still sublime. So is anyone else going to question the fact that Ken called London a ballad? (laughs) I was going to let that go. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I never heard London as a ballad, but you know, why not? I like the fact that this song comes out of nowhere style wise, because up to this point, I certainly wouldn't call this a power ballad by any means, but up to this point, the sort of hard rock ballads were these power ballads about love and, you know, love lost and you know, we've heard them all we we sort of we we, we know all these songs because we're 
products of the 80s. And so we know what happens when hard rock bands do a, do a ballad. And this is a step up many times. It's profound. And the fact that there's a, an orchestra in here giving it such texture. And, and, and this is not something that I think we've heard at all. I mean, this is this song sort of broke the mold. We talked before about how different Rage for Order was from from Operation Mindcrime, and this song impresses me in the same manner that it is out of left field, and but it, it still has the Queen's Reich stamp. This is an incredibly original song. And I think that's an excellent point, Tom, because when you get a song like this that was so popular, and that has been played or that you have heard so often you you can become jaded and when you can sort of take some distance and go back and look at it sort of from the perspective that we do and you and you realize that yeah it it it's fundamentally awesome i just find that to be you know an exciting sort of experience a couple things that triggered tom is that while Seemingly, the song comes out of left field. I don't. I don't necessarily know that this isn't a regular progression or part of the progression because I think one of the greatest choices that this band ever made was in the song "I Will Remember." After the middle section, and they go into the solo, they chose to do an acoustic duo solo when every other instinct in metal at that time would have called for a an electric guitar solo and this was before the unplugged bays and five man acoustical jam blah 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 right so to me it was and and this is in an album that is so big and monstrous that it might inspire some to even refer to the song london as a ballad right they chose <laughs> to do an acoustic a dual solo so i i feel like silent lucidity is kind of like a, a natural progression of that same sentiment that that they had as it shows up here. The other thing that kind of triggers is like, this song did kind of have the same impact that we've seen these types of phenomenon have to other bands, right? This song made Chris DeGarmo enough money that he could retire and basically decimated the band for all time. Um, the open arms took Journey from, you know, the, the place where they were and made them a household name and made them do arena tours and, Two albums later, the band was completely decimated. Extreme puts out more than words, which I think is a direct parallel to this because mm -hmm. quite similarly, people heard um, more than words, went out and bought Pornography 2 and were like, what the hell is this record? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, probably a lot of people found the same way when they when they picked up Empire and they they started playing it and and Extreme didn't last much longer after after that. So it's it's fascinating to me that these little songs that redefine a band's popularity ultimately seem to be the thing that you can point to and say, yeah, that that was the the beginning of the end. So in your screenplay, Tom, I think we shouldn't be trying to stop Chris DeGarmo from writing this song. We should be stopping the the orchestration tapes from Michael Kamen's studio making it to like we should be intercepting the death star plans uh, on their way to the to the queen's Reich studio so so they never get to hear the orchestration and they never release the song 
<laughs> I think that right there was worth all the hours of Queensryche that we've already <laughs> talked about. <laughs> That's amazing. Can we talk about the Grammy nomination? Sure. Um, what would you like to talk about the Grammy nomination? Well, it put Queensryche on the same stage with, I don't know, Vince Gill, Luther Vandross and all these people or something. It's really interesting, though. If, if, if I scroll through the Wikipedia for the Grammys, 34th annual Grammys that took place in 1992, they were nominated. They performed. They didn't win. The categories, I believe, were best rock song and best rock vocal performance. <laughs> the winner of the best rock song that year, I believe, uh, yes, 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 it was best rock song, Sting, writer for the Soul Cages. Uh, Just wanted to throw that in for you, Tom. Um, and best hard rock vocal performance, I wish Tate would have won Van Halen for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Interesting. Wow. Does that sound right? Even I mean, I mean, Sammy's good, but is there what what is on that album that made it so right now? Maybe I don't know. Uh, yeah, you can't mess with Sammy. He's an institution. All right. I'm curious to get into these next two songs because I think I'm just, I, I don't know where this is going to go. Um, so the first up here or the next track on the record is hand on heart. A lot of these songs are, I I'm ambivalent about, I listen to them. I enjoy them. Um, you know, I have some notes here. Like there are parts about this. I really, really like, it's got another fantastic intro. I like the, I guess it's probably you call it the bridge section. Um, the first one time they go through, but that was some time ago, a memory vague and fading slow of somewhere I'd been. And it's cool because it's, you know, it's one of these songs where Jeff will, he'll switch up the lyrics in that section each time they go through it, which I really, really enjoy. I think vocally he does a great job on here, but I can't ever say that when this comes on, I'm like, yeah, this song. It just, you know, it's okay, cool. I do like the verses. This song kind of reminds me of like a Survivor song. My brother used to listen to Survivor. And yes, the same Survivor that sings Eye of the Tiger. The Burning With, Heart. Yeah, the Burning Heart. And so uh, they had this weird band that they didn't really know what direction they were they were going. They were kind of hard rock, but they weren't. Anyway, and they had these very generic songs on their albums and again this is like resistance where there's such a deficit between the the great songs that Queensryche has done and these if you put the song against you know most other things hand on hearts better because it's you know this still is the the, the great era of Queensryche and they still have elements in the song that are great it just doesn't cut it compared to the the good stuff so i i, I tend to be harder on these songs and I probably should. Is it the case with these songs that keep coming up and, and we've invoked Bon Jovi and, and other things, is it a case of Queensryche being, dare I say, more obvious in their songwriting than maybe we're used to? There are enough really great songs on this album that give you sort of turns and twists. Like if you would think of this as a story, there's just like, 
it goes in a different direction. It goes in an unexpected direction and you say, oh, wow, that was really interesting. But then there are times where this is very stock and it sort of gives you the big production and the mediocre sort of 80s hard rock choruses. And I like this stuff, you know, I like a lot of this stuff probably more than you guys do. So I can appreciate where they were trying to go, but they didn't need to go because they were already badass. They already <laughs> had the sound. Like they already had their act together. They already had the Queensryche stamp. I mean, on this album, there were enough songs that made this album passable. You know, it made this a good album. I, I think that maybe they were just trying to overcompensate here and, and, and they didn't need to. Well, and I, I will make the point, this album has a listed running time of 63 minutes, which is maybe a, two songs too long. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which makes me wonder, you know, Tom, you're, you, I don't know that you're necessarily saying much anything different than you said about Another Rainy Night, but I feel like you like Another Rainy Night better than Hand on Heart. And I and I, I kind of wonder if Hand and Heart and Rainy Night were switched in the track order. If you'd like, you know, Hand on Heart better and Another Rainy Night less. Um, just because by track nine, there is fatigue of these, you know, whatever you want to characterize. I, if Another Rainy Night was Bon Jovi, Hand on Heart is like Def Leppard. The outro solo is <laughs> is like classic you know, pyromania, you know, we're ending the song and now we're going to, you know, sing the chorus again and have a guitar solo over it. But I, I just cannot resist the lure of the v verses with the harmonies uh, when they come in on the second line. You know, my voice fell useless. You flashed a quick hello. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't resist that stuff. And I think that that, you know, as, as I can't disagree with anything you said, but I just, I think there's something about that charm that they've managed to take all of their metalness and all of their progressive tendencies and, you know, turn it into a pop, you know, song. It's um, something about it that just uh, gets me going. So there is a very fine line with this stuff. I mean, listen, I'm probably the only one here that would, that likes the New Jersey album from Bon Jovi. So, oh, I, mean, I love, like, I love that album, dude. Okay. Well, 99, yeah. 99 in the shade. Yeah. I'll be there. I'll be there for you. Come on. Oh, oh yeah. I, mean, I, I think there's a lot of great songs yeah. on there. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a lot of that stuff. So, I mean, but I guess I just have a hard time with Queensryche singing the stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I just, I don't, I like the song up until the chorus. I do like the verses. I just don't want to hear it <laughs> on, mm. on, on Empire. And I do, maybe you're right, Paul. Maybe, you know, I do, I do like Another Rainy Night. And I think it's just because it's more personal. And it's, there are things in there that you can sort of stick to lyrically um, that just hit me. And I, you know, I don't know if that necessarily makes it a better song or not. I, I don't know if I can sell it more than I can, you know, not sell this one. But, you know, I, at this point, we just have had some really great Queensryche moments and yeah. I, I just, I just don't want to hear the song. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Incidentally, in my freshman year of college, when I was frequently driving home to, uh, you know, come home and jam with you guys on weekends, 
I would play 99 in the shade uh, every Friday morning, getting ready uh, for my Friday classes. Because there's 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 that line, go tell the boys I'm on my way. And I, I got the radio blasted in my old man Chevrolet. I used to love that fucking song, dude. It's just it has like the bigness, but it's like right on the verge, you know, yeah. and, and, and yeah. you sort of keep going with it. But anyway, that's, can that's we, another. Can we bring just, this back from Bon Jovi just, land? Had I brought up these points earlier in the album, it could have been sacrilege. So I held on to a couple thoughts just in general about this album. If you're going to create a summertime song or a party song or something, go all the way. But the hand on heart emotion is way too subtle, way too deep, way too grown up. The lyrics and the music maybe don't even fit together. I, I don't know what's going on there. The harmonies are beautiful, but it's just, you know, a, a little too deep and a little too weird. But fine, we, we got a lot of that. In the 90s, you know, maybe maybe King's X goes there. It's like beautiful, but it's a little too weird for most of the world. And then I was also thinking, hey, are they doing too much with metronomes through here? Because at this point, they got really good with technology. They got really good syncing video to audio. They got really good at recording. But is some of my fatigue just the fact that they're not jamming so much anymore? And as mm -hmm. they're going through these five and a half, you know, minute songs it, it's just kind of all the same pound pound and we're just dying for scott to do some funky fill somewhere uh because yeah i'm feeling the fatigue at this point in the album hand on heart and the next one one and only i'm just <sighs> what what's what's happening where are we going i had to get that out of my system and, and and having said that, maybe we should move on to one and only because it seems like on my screen, the left-hand side <laughs> really wants to take a crap all over one and only. And Mr. Zotter, every time someone makes an offhand comment about it, just deflates a little bit more. This song is so <laughs> fucking awesome from front <laughs> to end. I, I just can't even believe that anyone is even like suggesting there's anything wrong with it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it, it has got such a fucking badass intro with the palm mutes and the chord staccatos, the ride cymbal intro and the fast, the fast uh, drumming to go along with it. And then boom, it breaks. And all of a sudden it's got this amazing halftime feel and the fucking guitar solo. It just drips with with just some just sensational like the intonation and the bending and the garmo is at its finest i salute I, your ability to take music maybe without the lyrics even as part of the context uh, context paul paul, paul you, you're, you're great at just hearing a music bed for what it is but I, I i think i'm vulnerable to this whole package thing and it just doesn't make it i just the, the words don't jump out at me Really? See, I have down here that the lyrics are understatedly awesome. Okay. All right. Wow. And like wow, it, is, it is like a 2v2 progressive <laughs> palaver. <laughs> it's a tag team match. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's funny because up until the time that I was, you know, preparing for this, I've been listening to this album for years. I never really paid that much attention to one and only. I think musically, I, I hear where Paul is, like the guitar solo is freaking awesome. It's another song where Scott and Eddie are just kind of doing wonderful things in and around everything else. 
but again, it wasn't until I sat down to, you know, on the last listen through for this, that I sat down with the lyrics and went through and I'm like, damn, these are actually much better than I would have thought they were. And there was just something about them that I responded to. Um, it, it, I, I just, I found a lot more depth in these lyrics than I thought was there when I actually read them. I might think differently about this song if resistance and hand on heart were out. Yeah. Um, because yeah. there is fatigue and there are times, and I will say that I, I do like the verses and that last bit is just yeah. clean dry. Oh, the last bit. Huge. Go, they go into, okay, this is like a complete time, time change or something yeah. going on there. It's they, like crazy. It's fantastic. And, uh, this is, yeah, this is wonderful. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of the chorus, which I think that's what, get, that's what, um, you know, kills it for me. But, you know, I, I think if there wasn't, those two songs in there. You know. I might say any two, right? Because in my, I mean, and this goes directly to Mark Anthony Kay's opinion that no album should be more than 45 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Right. I took out Della Brown and resistance and one and only was like, I mean the one, one and only and anybody listening as a one, two punch finale. Mm. It might be the greatest thing that happened in the nineties. Just going to say it. Okay. Would it work as an album opener? Well, let me tell you this. If they would have opened up the Empire Tour with One and Only instead of Resistance, I would have literally passed out. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel the same way, but only if they opened up with Last Time in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't get the attraction to that, but okay. Uh, uh, I'm just anyway. All right, so we're we're completely split on one and only. I think we all agree that there is fatigue, and in you know if that plays a part, you know I, we can have that conversation. But again, it's it's split two v two. I think that pretty much tells the story. I'm hoping to high heaven that there isn't any dissent on anybody listening. Fantastic freaking song. Fantastic freaking song. Yeah. Um, I, and I think I've been meaning to point out for like two weeks now that not only was there an increased amount of spinning by guitar players mm-hmm. in the visual representation of Empire, but there was an awful lot of arms crossing going on in the Jeff Tate visuals. And he hugs himself as he walks across the stage. Yeah, and and the the walking that he did in this video is just a little unnerving to me. Like I get what they're trying to accomplish, but it just seemed very forced. And, and so I'm just throwing that out there now, so we can talk about how wonderful uh, this this song is. Yeah, there there's there's a great Mike Wilton, by the way. Yeah, yeah, just posted mm-hmm. on his Twitter, so. Oh, he did. Oh, nice. From tonight. Nice. I I don't know if it's from tonight or not, but they were in Philly tonight. Oh, so this was not. This was from Everett, Washington. So, but but we can't really can't really talk about anybody's listening without just the opening bass harmonic that that he slides up and then comes down with the descending pattern. I mean, it is. Oh, it's still not as amazing as Road to Madness, but maybe not. It's pretty amazing. Maybe. It's pretty, 
it's pretty amazing and it is it is 100% Eddie Jackson brilliance. Eddie Jackson's going to come into full bloom, I think, on Promised Land, but he's just about in full bloom here and anybody listening is absolutely a, a great example of that. I also love there's that section with the sustained guitar between verses 1 and 2 the super long and dramatic solo section, which is absolutely spectacular throughout this song. um, And certainly as it even goes on, Scott and Eddie, once again, just doing their thing. And I love the whole, the whole sand beneath your feet sort of motif that they have and the drama that they bring in sort of musically, literally underneath that, as if the sand, Um, The walls were becoming sand beneath your feet, like as that transition is occurring. And, you know, um, as amazing as the first verse is, somehow the second verse is even better. They're able to sort of ramp up that that drama and all the fatigue that we've been feeling at this point just sort of washes away. And I want to say, if we look at this, um, and I, I forget... Yeah, I mean, this is a seven minute and 40 second song. It's pretty, pretty beefy, especially at the end of a 63 minute album. Mm -hmm. And yet it's so energizing and wonderful. You know, we've made comments. There was a a period in, in Yes's history where John Anderson made it a point to have a specific type of song at the end of, of their records. I made the the point earlier that Queensryche seems to like these sort of, I, I don't want to say scaled back, but perhaps less loud, but very dramatic sort of closers on these three records that we mentioned. And I just, it's, they're so good at it. And I love it. Like, mm-hmm. I, you wonder if they, if, if they approach it, like we need to write the last song or they're writing songs and they're going, that's the last one, you know. Mm. I, I don't know. Are, yeah. Are, are you including Rage for Order as one of the three? Oh, very much. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. And not not Road to Madness because I love Road to Madness. Roads to Madness probably deserves. I mean, the warning is uh, in. I sort of characterize the warning in a slightly different section mm-hmm. than okay than after. But I see your point. It fits the mold. So we could we could say four albums with this particular pattern yeah Sweet. and we'll give them a pass on mind crime because there were story elements that had to be tied up yes i i think anybody listening could be on mind crime or side two of their their next album uh, i think the side two of their next album there's a lot of these kind of songs promised land is it's a little bit of a hodgepodge and you know we'll talk about that next week but this song uh, completely blows me away it's one of those songs that i sort of rediscover like every five years and i'm just like oh my god where did this song come from i think when i was younger listening to the song when when we first listened to it there may have been a lot of times because maybe we're listening to cassettes still I mean, I know I did have it on CD, but I think I had it on everything. But anyway, uh, we listen to cassettes still. So a lot of times I didn't, I didn't make it till the end of the album. And I think I, I might've even stopped listening around, you know, hand on heart or something. I just didn't hear this as much as I heard a lot of the other songs on the album. So 
you know, later on when I would hear the song, my jaw would drop. I'd be like, my God, this song is so beautiful. And again, this is to me like a perfect Queensryche song. It, it's a great way to end the album. And I do feel guilty for, I say, I, I, I mean, I, I probably did enjoy it, you know, back in the day, but I think, I think I probably felt similar to what we're feeling now about it being a little too long. So when it's a little too long, usually the last song on the album is going to get hit. And this is a, it's a shame because this is one of the best songs on the album. I love the message. I think the human condition is that every 10 years we, we have a revelation and we maybe get one or two good decades before we can't find our pants, but we, at least somewhere along the line we're we're improving. And this is perhaps the, you know, maybe moving from the twenties to the thirties and becoming more of a, thinking human being and specifically they talk about everyone talks and no one listens so maybe it is in young adulthood we do a lot of talking when we finally learn how to listen it's quite the revelation hmm. i'm glad you brought that up ken i love these lyrics and i love the way that jeff sings them throughout the whole thing so if you don't mind i'm going to read some of them go for it you and I long to live like wind upon the water. If we close our eyes, may, we'll maybe realize there's more to life than what we have known. And I can't believe I've spent so long living lies I knew were wrong inside. I've just begun to see the light. Long ago, there was a dream, had to make a choice or two, leaving all I loved behind for what nobody knew. Stepped out on, a, on the stage, a life, I always thought it was stepped out on the stage of life, but it's stepped out on the stage, a life under lights and judging eyes. Now the applause has died and I can dream again. Is there anybody listening? Is there anybody, anyone that sees what's going on? Read between the lines, criticize the words they're selling. Think for yourself and feel the walls become sand beneath your feet. Ah, oh, freaking love that. Mm -hmm. So good. And then mm -hmm. even the second verse, right? Because he, he brings in this sort of nautical motif, which is always very powerful. Feel the breeze. Time so near, you can almost taste the freedom. There's a warm wind from the south. Hoist the sail and we'll be gone. By morning, this will all seem like a dream. And if I don't return to sing the song, maybe just as well. I've seen the news and there's not much I can do alone. Oh, mm -hmm. that's great. Absolutely love that song. And, you know, it's it's so big and it's so dramatic. And the way that it ends up with just the ocean song, I've made sort of the the reference before to, you know, bands landing albums. And if you think about this, you know, all the the fatigue and everything else aside, if you get this far in the record, which hopefully you do, Tom, to your point, you get one of those highs, right? They build this up and they, they kind of, it, it swells up sort of in, in two waves, I think. And, and it winds up, you're pretty high up. And then it just, you know, with the way that it winds down and with that ocean sort of outro, it just very gently brings you back down 
and sort of lets you out the door. It's I, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. Agreed. What's fascinating is you can make a parallel with Sweet Sister Mary because you do have the more intense parts interspersed mm -hmm. with the guitar motif, the arpeggiated guitar motif. And it's like they got on to something like, oh, this allows the album to breathe. This, this, this is how we develop a long form song. If this was in the middle of the album, it could have been a real game changer, I think. Really? Just like Sweet Sister Mary is in the middle of Mind Cry. Mm. A way to bring it down, but powerfully so, and give everyone a chance to go poof in the brain before ramping up again into a rock experience. Just a thought. Yeah, that's interesting. I would have, like, I've always been so enamored with this at the end. I would have never considered that. I would have thought it, quite frankly, blasphemous. But you make a very interesting point. I could be sold on that, Ken. I mean, I, I it would be risky because it's like we're so used to this being on the re on the last part of the album. And we, we'd have, sort of have to get rid of the whole ocean thing because that's a minute of that. But if we got rid of that minute of ocean sounds... I think this is strong enough where it could bring up the album a couple notches. And again, you'd have to take off resistance and the hand on heart. But I mean, I think if you did that and then move this up, you, you would have a different album. And I think it would have a little bit more um, weight in the long run. That would be fun. Okay. So we've, we've, we've got a, Salvage.empire happening here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when, you know, you take out Jar Jar Binks and you take out a couple of things in, in episode one and you go, well, there's a couple elements in this to this is that that's pretty good. But the thing is, you then you'd have to take out Jar Jar Binks and you'd have to take out, you know, all the other nonsense. And that's, you know, it, it's, it's a different, different movie. But anyway. Indeed. Uh, I know we... You know, there, there's it, it's not what we normally do, but there has been a lot of, a little bit of chatter around this. So while we wait for Paul to return, shall we deal with the with the bonus, bonus tracks? Track. I mean, the one is so bad. I don't even think we should talk about it because it, it almost disrespects this whole album. I, I, I don't I don't really want to end on such a bad note. And well, I, I, I think we can at least mention the fact that. Dirty Little Secret is not a great song. It does not fit in this area that Queensryche is inhabiting. It's not like anything Queensryche has ever done. And it's a really big question mark as to why it was even recorded and released. I think that's yeah, fair. I, I think this is so bad. This is even worse than their post the Garment era stuff. I mean, like, this is really disgraceful. Dirty Little Secret to me almost sounded like a Motley Crue song. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, so, I mean, a bad one. I don't know. I mean, I, I think uh, this song is just straight up disgraceful. I mean, I, 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 it's like a different size, a different fit, a different color. A, a, I mean, a different planet. I mean, it's like, I, yeah, the it, players are there. They're singing. You, you say, okay, that's Jeff Tate. But like, 
you hear like the slide guitar and it definitely sounds like one of the knockoff 80s bands i mean Pass sounds like a, let, let, let's, yeah, let's yeah. just let's just let's just say what what we need to say queen's is better than this song period yeah now we've talked a little bit about scarborough fair um paul we've we moved on to the bonus tracks um, unless you that. had anything uh, additional about anybody listening that you would like to oh, we add was just in? saying that Dirty Little no. Secret sounds like Motley Crue to me, or it sounds like one of these, you know, 80s pseudo blues kind of knockoffs of, you know, slutty metal. But it, 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 Joe said it well. It, Queensryche is kind of better than this. I mean, th- this isn't even good enough to be great white. There's something weird going on here. It, it's part of the genre, but it just Maybe because it's not authentic. Maybe that's because it's not who they are. I would love to know how they came up with the song and like what. I think maybe the produ- the producer, or maybe even some of the execs found this song and said, "Oh, let's put this on as a as a as an extra song." I I really would like to think that no one in this band decided to put this song on here because. Uh, this is just embarrassing. I mean, I think it's really embarrassing. So, really quickly, Paul, did you have anything else on anybody listening before we go? No. Into this? <laughs> no. Okay. No. No. So good. we've we've talked previously about Scarborough Fair. I think we all agree that Scarborough Fair is absolutely brilliant. It was actually recorded for the uh, Rage for Order sessions, and, and I know I, I'm I'm interested in in Tom's thoughts on Last Time in Paris because I don't necessarily agree. But before we get there, since Scarborough Fair ties us back to Rage for Order, on the second disc of the Super Duper Expanded box set here, we have the acoustic remix of I Dream in Infrared. Now, one of you, and I forget which one, you know, brought up the five-man acoustical jam that was going on at this time. Um, You know, this was when the heavy metal acoustic thing was, was sort of all the rage. And it's an interesting choice, I think, to go back and and sort of do this acoustic remix of I Dream in Infrared. I'm not sure why it's here unless this was when they did it. It's just kind of weird if anyone has taken the time to listen to it. It's not terrible, but it's not necessary either. And Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't I haven't listened to it on the box set, but I had this as a B-side to some single around the same time when I had Scarborough Fair, when I bought the Scarborough Fair import. Mm. It's literally just a remix without all the heavy guitars, right? And, From and the album. You, it's not like re-recorded or anything like that. No, it's not re-recorded. Yeah. And like, you know, when there are the breaks with just the, the guitars, it, it just has this like blasting acoustic playing the same chords. And you're just like, the fuck? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's very it's, strange. It's almost like they said, hey, we need a cool B-side. Okay, let's just, yeah. You know, remix this yeah Uh, now we can very quickly touch on last time in paris tom you have been gushing about this song like for i don't know a couple weeks at this point i've listened to it you know maybe a dozen times in my life and i just i i don't get it so what what about last time in paris is works so well for you i think it's just because i'm pleasantly surprised about a b-side and, you know, I don't know, in all honesty, I, you know, I kind of talk a lot of shit on the texts. You guys are probably used to that. But I, in all honesty, I don't know if I would put it on the album. I would certainly get rid of Resistance and, and Hand on Heart. 
Ken's idea of, of moving anybody listening up is an interesting one. Yeah, you know, I don't know if this song is as good as this album deserves, but I do enjoy listening to the song. And I there's something about this riff and Paul. I I, I just <laughs> I think of Paul when I hear this riff. I don't know, you know, it's just, it's weird. I've known you guys for so long, and I just I just picture Paul air guitaring to the riff. It's a meaty riff and it, it's tight i i can tell you i i know why ken doesn't like it because of when we were talking about fish ken you were talking about how you don't like when choruses there's a, a line that that keeps repeating and so they don't even do the chorus until the second time through they do verse and that refrain and then they go back to the verse and do the refrain and then they do the chorus not like it really hits you over the head more than it should uh, so it's more it's like a build so I, I like it even more because they don't sing it the first time through i, I don't know i i just think it's, it's a it's a fun sort of a feel-good rock song do i like it enough where i would put it on the album probably not so awesome. there's the, there's the thing tom right so i think having it as a like a bonus track on empire is mis is is misplaced right because this mm-hmm. this song was on the Ford Fairlane uh, soundtrack, and that came out before Empire. And oddly enough, they sent them the song Empire, and they passed on it. And they said, "No, nope, we'll take Last Time in Paris." And that tells you all you need to know about the producers of the movie Ford Fairlane. But I like I remembered this coming out on the soundtrack and being like, I can't believe it was like when junior's gone wild, when I came out on the bill and Ted's, I was like, what, what is one of my favorite bands doing on a movie soundtrack? And when I listened to it in the context of here's, here's the boys in Queensryche putting together a song for a movie. I have your exact same reaction to it. It's fun. It's a little different. There's like the whole bridge part is sort of enough is enough to it. You know, it's kind of like a, you know, a nod to like the eighties pop, like it's fun. It's different. It's still them being a little tongue and cheeky. I thought, mm-hmm. I don't know if Ken hates the chorus, but I do. Um, and you know, I feel like they just kind of went to lunch on the chorus, but it's that fun sort of like, cool. This is like, this is the Queens Reich in between all their albums and, this is kind of fun and refreshing and it's cool that they're doing this. Now I do say when, when I heard that I, I did say to myself, well, I hope the next album is nothing like this, but I think it's kind of funny like to hear you say that and say, Oh, I wouldn't put it on this album because it really doesn't belong. I mean, it doesn't belong really tagged on to this album any more than Scarborough fair or dirty little secret does. So, right. but so I'm, I'm kind of with you on, on the joy that is around this song. It's just not, you know, it's, it's just not your typical Queensryche song. And the fact that it's on a soundtrack, I think, gives them the latitude to, to be that way. Now, the lyrics, just reading through, it's maybe the closest Queensryche will ever come to Marillion's Montreal. It's like an actual story, but it's not even quite as interesting as Marillion's Montreal. It's just... Jeff getting a hotel room with renovations next door, banging for 14 hours. He can't get into the theater because no one recognizes him until the photo shoot. That's it. Not bad. There you go. All right. So we did it. 
We covered Empire <laughs> in only two episodes. <laughs> I guess our task is to see if we can do Promised Land in one next week. We'll see. You know, again, I think this album is important enough. It's long enough. It plays a pivotal role. There's a lot of context around it. So again, you know, not that I ever feel bad, but I, I feel no remorse at how we have treated this record. And as always, I'm very glad that you guys came along, added in all your thoughts. This was this was a fun a uh, fun little exercise as always. So uh, looking forward to doing Promised Land next episode and we'll see what happens after that. So as always, guys, thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. We are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Next week, Ken Gregory performs Resistance. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned, kids.